Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com you're the mom the maid the keeper of the cookies you do it all and you look good doing it it's parenthood on a mother level here's your host denise hanitka hi everybody i'm denise hanitka and you are listening to on a mother level So glad you can be here for this episode today. My guest is fantastic, and you are going to listen to every word of her conversation because her story is just that compelling. So we just got through Super Bowl weekend, and at the end of the game, Tom Brady had won, and they cut to a shot of his parents. And they said, you know, Susie and Pat Brady, or whatever their names are. I turned to my husband and I said, holy smokes, can you imagine being Tom Brady's mom? Imagine the joy and the pride you would feel being Tom Brady's mom. And I said, I think I would be more happy to be Tom Brady's mom in that moment than I would to be Tom Brady. Like, there's nothing that I could do that would give me as great of joy and pride as watching my kid succeed and achieve like that. I mean, really, thinking about that and being in that stadium, and it doesn't have to be an NFL stadium, but whatever it is that Abram does, for example, someday somebody's going to say, that's Abram's mom. Like, wow. When you think about the role you have and the pride you feel being involved in this young life and what an honor and a privilege it is to be involved. So I don't know, maybe that was the wine talking during the Super Bowl. It wasn't that great of a game. If you were watching, the commercials weren't that great either. But something about Tom Brady's mom really jumped off the screen to me. And I think that's the perfect introduction to my guest today. Her name is Jessica McCurney. And she's going to talk about the journey that her family has been on since February of 2019. That's when she first realized that her little boy had cancer. He was not even two at the time when Hudson was eventually diagnosed with leukemia. And so Jessica talks about the gut instinct that led her to ask questions that led to Hudson's diagnosis. Jessica talks about childhood cancer in a very frank and honest way. And that was important to her when we started this conversation. You'll hear her talk about it at the end. But she said, how honest do you want me to be about this? And as someone who tells stories for a living and who does interviews for a living, 
I always want people to be as raw and authentic as they want to be. But in Jessica's case, she said some people don't want the honest and raw story because it's not pretty all the time. And she compared it to, you know, not everybody's happy, smiling, make-a-wish, St. Jude's, having a great time, parties with clowns in their hospital rooms. She said, I'm going to talk about it honestly. And there are some happy moments, of course. He's a little boy and their family is positive and happy. But you're going to hear the raw moments of being a mom, watching your child be treated with poison so that one day he can live a healthy and cancer-free life. The cool thing is that she speaks about it frankly, not just about what Hudson went through, but what she goes through. And she gives herself the credit that she deserves for getting through some really tough stuff. You'll hear Jessica talk about this, but for a moment, to get you kind of in the mindset for this interview, imagine you have a 10-week-old newborn, okay? 10 weeks old. When I think about 10 weeks old, I think about, okay, shoot, I got to think about maybe sort of starting a sleep training. I got to go back to work soon. I'm hitting that 12-week mark very soon. I've got a toddler at home. He's almost two. And my 10-week-old isn't sleeping, still breastfed exclusively. And now I discovered that my almost two-year-old has leukemia. And everything in our lives is about to change. And every day I'm going to worry that his little body is not going to be strong enough to beat this. So that's where Jessica's at when she starts her story. Today, Hudson is still getting cancer treatment. You're going to hear about his progress. You're going to hear about how he's able to go to school a couple days a week, as long as his health allows. And you'll hear about the prognosis, and it's good. And he's going to be okay. But Jessica and her family have been through a lot. And they're talking about it, frankly, for a couple reasons, okay? Number one, they want you to know that childhood cancer is underfunded. Jessica tells me that only 4% of the money that's allocated towards cancer research goes to childhood cancer research. 96% of the money goes to adult cancers. Number two, she talks about it because you need to go out and donate blood. Okay. This is something we talk about all the time. Like donate blood. That would be great. Okay. But really do it because blood donations have saved Hudson's life a number of times. Blood donations save lives. And it's not just after a car accident or some traumatic event. They save a life every time a child like Hudson needs a transfusion. She wants you to hear the real and the raw story so that you understand what's at stake when you donate money, when you donate your blood, and when you support a family like hers. And she's going to tell you the different things that you can do if there's a family in your life that might be going through something similar and how you can help and how you can be an advocate. It was a hard conversation to have. It was emotional looking at Jessica while she talked about everything her little boy's been through. And it was emotional listening to it all over again as I edited it down and cleaned it up for you to hear. This one, this one's really sticking with me. In a couple places in the podcast, you will hear Jessica talk about these photos that serve as these milestone, these memory moments in their cancer journey. And so I'm going to post those on my Instagram because they will help illustrate her story. And she's allowing me to share them with you to really give you a window into her world. 
And so that brings me back to Tom Brady's mom. Okay, (laughs) how am I getting back here? Well, because several times during this podcast, you will hear the pride and the joy that Jessica has, not just for Hudson and his fight and his upbeat little attitude as he goes through something that surely he can't understand at his age, but also for their little daughter, Violet. And Violet is the little sister of Hudson who will support him and mother him and nurture him in ways that seem beyond her years. And so Jessica talks about feeling so proud that these little humans are hers and that despite everything, she's raising these great little fighters and these great little nurturers. I thought that was a very cool part of her story also. The story she tells about Violet in the bath is so sweet. So I'm going to let Jessica take it from here. This is Jessica McKerney, an Iowa mom who's facing cancer with her three-year-old little boy and everything that comes with it, how it's impacted her marriage, her friendships, and her life during the pandemic. Here's Jessica McKerney. We've had to reschedule this conversation many, many times, sometimes on me, sometimes on you. But, you know, one of the last times that we had to reschedule, it was because Hudson had spiked a fever and you needed to get to the hospital right away. And I felt like that moment right there is probably what it is to have a child with cancer. Yes, 100%. You have to drop everything in that moment. It doesn't matter what it is life kind of stops and then you have to go handle it. And so that usually means a long drive. You have another child, you have a job. Yeah. I mean, you literally have an hour to get to Iowa city with, you know, two toddlers, um, all packed in the car with everything you need, um, get to Iowa city within an hour for blood draws. And so, you know, whether you're at work or wherever you're at, fortunately, um, my husband works a hundred percent remote. Um, so that helps. But now with COVID, there is a one parent rule. So that's also been a huge factor since like March of 2020. Yeah. Just adding the, the aspect of being alone yes. has got to just take an already stressful situation up a notch. Yes. Yes. So you're basically having to hear about your child's fever, you know, cancer visit through either like FaceTime or my husband's like trying to update me via text while the doctor is in there and you're not hearing it firsthand while you're also still caring for your other toddler at home. So we were so used to all of us being together all the time that it was a huge shock when we had to separate. It still is. I, I cannot wait for the day, just like everyone else, that COVID is over so we can all go to our child's oncology visits because I mean, why not throw a pandemic in the middle of childhood cancer? Unbelievable. Yeah. Where would you say this story begins? This story begins in February, 2019. A little bit of a background. I work as a nurse practitioner. um, So I have a medical background, which is incredibly helpful. Most people don't have that. And I've never been more thankful to work in healthcare. I was playing with Hudson, who was not quite two at the time, about 23 months. And I noticed a few little of just a few pinpoint dots on his forearm, which he's a boy. He literally will leap off anything we own constantly 
trying to injure himself. So it wouldn't be odd for him to have a bruise, but these were different. These were petechiae, which are just um, a little bit of bleeding under the skin. So it almost looked like he took a pin and had a few little dots on him, but they caught my eye and they were light in color even. So when I saw them, I immediately thought Hudson has leukemia. And really? Yeah. So I just knew petechiae was a sign of childhood cancer or cancer in general. And I knew that he was at an age that he was at risk or in that age group that where leukemia can typically develop. And so I see this petechiae and then I saw it on his other forearm. And I remember thinking Hudson has leukemia. And I texted my husband and I said, Hudson has petechiae on both of his forearms. Don't Google what it means. I just want you to know that he has them. And of course he Googled what it meant. So then for the next few nights, I monitored his temperature because with leukemia, you can have these low grade fevers. And sure enough, for a few nights in a row, he had these low grade fevers. And so then I kind of watched for some other symptoms. So as moms, we know our kids, we know what every little scratch, every little bruise is from. And I could tell you know, the bruise on his shin was from this and whatnot, but there was a bruise on his toe that stood out to me as being very strange. Um, I hadn't seen it before. I didn't know of any falls, anything like that. So that was odd to me. But I also noticed he did look pale, but it was February. He had a slight darkening under his eyes, which again, kids can have. So then I started trying to get him to eat more like iron rich foods I noticed that his appetite was a little low, but his belly still looked full. So I'm picking up on all of these things. And I'm telling people, even fellow coworkers that work in healthcare, I am saying, I know Hudson has leukemia. And they told me I'm crazy. I'm paranoid. I don't know what I'm talking about. I need to stay off the internet. And I said, no, I, it is not any of that. I know what it is. And so I called our pediatrician office and Luckily, who we love at Dr. Omar's office, Tina Coakley is a nurse practitioner there. Yeah. Who we absolutely adore. And she got us in right away and she saw Hudson. And by that time, the petechiae was gone. And of course, normally it wouldn't disappear, but his did. And she said that she would draw the CBC. I said, Tina, I'd like a CBC blood test done to check for leukemia. She said that she would draw it. So I would sleep at night because she knows I'm an anxious mother. I knew when she called me about an hour later with the blood result that that's what it was. And she wanted to know if I was sitting down or if I was holding the baby because I have a um, 10 week old at this point. Also, I just knew I said, Tina, you just need to tell me. And she said his labs are abnormal. His hemoglobin is five, anything less than eight. They typically do a blood transfusion. Um, His white count was three, which is low. Everything was low. His platelets were Um, around 20, which normally you want them over 150, which would explain the petechiae. As she started to tell me this, and I'm writing it down, holding Violet, our daughter, I just start, you know, screaming. I'm like, he can't die. He can't die. He can't die. That's all I could get out to say. And so at that point, I'm hysterical. Tina's emotional. Her nurse, Becky, who is a friend of ours, is emotional because we all know each other. And, you know, seeing a child get diagnosed is bad enough. And then knowing it's one of your friends is even worse. And as I'm just, you know, hyperventilating, trying to talk to her, she's telling us that we need to immediately pack up. We need to go to the university of Iowa. They're expecting us on the 11th floor. And I said, what is the 11th floor? What floor are we going to? And she said, it's the, it's the oncology floor. And so at that point I knew, and meanwhile, Hudson is just like running around with this pudding cup, like 
happy as a clam. Nothing, yeah. No, nothing, you know, pudding all over. And so let me stop you for a second yeah. because every single mom listening to this right now goes, <laughs> well, I don't have a nursing background and I wouldn't know what to look for. And sure. My kid might have bruises or sure. You know, so everyone's mm-hmm. going, wait a second. What? Yes. <laughs> yes. I know. I know. Um, one of my goals, actually, at least a long-term goal of mine is to somehow have the pediatrician offices implement more of a screening tool. So right now when we go in, we're screened for hearing and milestones and speech and all of this. I mean, we get the checklist, we go through it, but never did we receive a checklist and it's, it's no fault of theirs, but we, we never received a checklist that said, is your child experiencing petechiae? Describe what it is. Unusual bruising, loss of appetite or swollen abdomen. Just any of these symptoms that would stand out to me, you know, excessive fatigue. We're never giving a screening like that. So a goal of mine is to have them, even if it's just passing out a resource to a parent of common signs, it's not screened because it's considered rare. But once you've been in the world of childhood cancer, it's not that rare you start to see that there's more and more families that are being diagnosed. We were a fortunate family that I knew this. I knew the signs. Most families are in and out of the hospital for weeks and weeks and weeks. And they're seeing their pediatrician over and over. I was just one who had a wonderful nurse practitioner who listened to me, who validated my feelings, who was experienced in the symptoms of childhood cancer. A lot of families go undiagnosed for a while with leukemia because they're being treated for viral illnesses and um, treated for ear infections and just all of these common, common complaints or common illnesses, because that does happen. You know, kids get sick and then they get better, but it's when the child doesn't get better or when the mom starts to have that feeling, something else is wrong. And when the mom has that feeling, these providers need to listen. I don't know how many times I've talked to other cancer moms who were so upset because they told their providers over and over that they wanted blood tests or that something was wrong. They knew it and no one was listening. I was lucky that someone listened. And on the flip side, and I'm sure you've experienced this in your expertise, you probably do get a lot of hysterical mothers and a lot of hysterical, I probably shouldn't use the word hysterical, but maybe you do experience that a lot where it's like, no, everything is okay. And, and so, yeah, it's like, you have to balance. Yeah. And it has changed my practice some because before you just try and reiterate with these parents, like they're okay. This is a viral illness. And now, you know, you almost second guess everything. But if a mom tells me she knows her child and she feels something is going on, I have no problem ordering more testing on a child because that mom knows their child better than anyone else better than me, better than anyone. I just validate the mother's feelings. And if that's what she needs for comfort, then I will do that. You know, nine times out of 10, it's going to be normal. Mm -hmm. But for someone in our situation, this type of cancer progresses so quickly that it needs caught early. We were fortunate that we caught Hudson's cancer when it was, his bones were 49% full of cancer cells. Most children who are diagnosed, it's not unusual for their bones to be 95 to hundred percent full of cancer. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So Hudson's was 49% and he also had it in his spinal fluid as well, which is even more rare to have that. But yeah, so we caught it early. So you go to the university of Iowa that same day and what's the immediate course of treatment? What happens? So we walk in the doors. They immediately know who we are. You know, we must be Hudson and they 
take us into a room and you're just swarmed by these nurses, you know, faces that you've never seen before. Multiple doctors, fellows are coming in. Immediately, Hudson is hooked up to an IV and we're signing papers for a blood transfusion, which never in our life did we think we would be consenting to a blood transfusion. But I get sat down and the oncologist wants to know, you know, the whole history of what happened. And I start describing it to him and he goes, what do you do? Because most people don't just walk in here with this timeline of a history and tell me that their child had petechiae. So I explained that I was a nurse practitioner. Um, so we were able to give a really great health history to them. And then Hudson received three blood transfusions that evening just to stabilize him, as well as two platelet transfusions, just to get him stable enough to have a bone marrow biopsy and a lumbar puncture. So those were just night one. And I remember, this is just a couple of months ago, the, one of the nurses who was working the day we came in told us, she said, you know, we see kids come up here to be evaluated. And as soon as we saw Hudson, we saw the paleness, we saw the dark eyes and how he looked, we knew he was definitely a cancer patient. Wow. And she said that she was not his nurse that night, but the nurse working beside her um, was, and all she was able to do that evening was blood products you know, constant transfusions to get him to stabilize. And she couldn't believe just all the blood transfusions that was happening. How did that feel to hear that now after two years? In the moment, you don't think, you know, that that's abnormal because so much is happening that you can hardly even grasp what's going on. One of the oncologists said, you know, this looks a lot like leukemia. We need to rule out some other things like autoimmune disorders and whatnot, but they did the bone marrow biopsy and that's what gave us the diagnosis. But that is why obviously our family is so passionate about blood donors, because if that blood wouldn't have been available, he would have died. Or if those platelets weren't available, he could have bled out. So that's why we encourage people to donate because I think only 37% of the population is eligible to donate and less than 10% of people actually do. So without that blood, you know, most blood products go to cancer patients like Hudson. A lot of people think it's traumas, car accidents, things like that, but it's actually cancer patients. And, you know, they're receiving this chemotherapy that knocks out their system and is killing off all of their cells. And this blood is just literally keeping them alive. I thought it was all trauma, accidents, post, you know, some, some big event where, you know, (laughs) I don't think I ever connected blood donation with cancer, let alone childhood cancer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, Hudson has had probably nearly 20, I bet, transfusions and, you know, he's not even done with treatment and that's just one child. So imagine how much blood is going to these childhood cancer patients. Just a couple of weeks ago, he got a fever, um, a virus, probably one of the other times that we had to cancel and he almost needed a platelet transfusion then all just from a virus you know, a common virus. So that's why we just can't thank blood donors enough. And they're truly heroes. I wish that people knew, you know, when they were donating the impact they had on these families, that means life or death for a lot of these kids. Yeah. So is this now turning into an extended hospital stay at this point? Or are you getting to take him home this night? So that night turned into an extended stay the first night. We were there about a week because once you get the diagnosis, you meet your oncologist, you continue to get blood transfusions, and then they start chemotherapy the next day. They can't wait. Hudson was categorized into categorized into standard risk. So, I mean, he's a lucky one, quote unquote, that there's actually a research protocol for him. A lot of kids aren't that lucky. So they start chemotherapy the next day and 
he has a protocol that lasts until May of 2022. And he had these different phases and he entered maintenance last November, which is supposed to be easier, but it's a lot of up and downs. I don't know that there's an easy route for these kids to take. So we were there a little over a week, came home for one night, had a traumatizing experience because what child wants to take about eight syringes worth of poisonous tasting medicine. So he refused his meds because he's two and they taste terrible and he feels awful. Um, So we were right back in the hospital after that. But the first month of treatment for him, um, it's called induction. It's a month worth of high dose steroids. So it completely changes the child. I mean, they Hudson couldn't walk. He couldn't talk. They crave food constantly. I mean, it wouldn't be abnormal for him to make like 30 trips to the refrigerator within a morning. It is just so hard on their little bodies. But the whole goal after this month is to put them into remission. He did go into remission. It's not a cure, but in remission after that first month. And then you go into kind of a healing phase and then it amps up again in what's called delayed intensification where he gets this medication that was red. It's um, called red devil or red death. So when you see this poison going into your child, which you're consenting for because it's going to help keep your child alive. Yet at the same time, you know that this could be damaging his heart, putting him at significant risk of death. So you're signing off on this, knowing that it's trying to keep him alive. Yet you're watching this red poison or other chemos that look like gasoline go into your child. So that alone is just terrible to see. And that's just watching the medication itself go in. Well, and especially because the day that you went to the hospital, other than those signs that you saw, he was a perfectly happy, healthy, you know, appearing kid. Yes. Some kids that come in, you know, they, they have been very ill. You can tell they're pretty down. I mean, he was still pretty rambunctious. I mean, he was climbing Violet's crib the morning of running around, you know, he seemed a little run down to me just because he's normally a very, very high energy child. He's very spirited. But other than that, most people would not have known at all, unless you knew what you were looking for. But then he hit maintenance in November. And then last January, he contracted, again, an everyday virus. And it put him in the hospital. And then it over a couple of days, he significantly worsened. And again, this is just an everyday virus. But because his immune system is so low, he developed 107 degree fevers. He was almost on the ventilator. He um, started to go into respiratory distress. And he went into what's called cytokine storm, which is what you hear about people who have COVID that they go into. It's this autoimmune response. So he went into that. But luckily, the doctors at the University of Iowa, which is where we go, they're just phenomenal. They're these wonderful humans who are so compassionate about what they do and they will do everything in their power to save these children. They knew what to do. They treated it. And thank God he survived that. But that was just one of the cases where we thought he might not, not survive. And it wasn't even the cancer that was killing him. It was a virus that he contracted. So these kids are so high risk. And a lot of times it's not the cancer treatment. It's what happens while they're on the treatment that kills them. And that's why you have to be so responsive the second something changes. Yes. Any fever, we have to go to Iowa City. And it's either an automatic week stay in the hospital or until we can have him fever free for so long. There's all these guidelines, but they do not take fevers lightly, as you can imagine. And that's why our family is so strict on cleaning and disinfectants and hand sanitizers. And we've been isolated since March of 2019, pretty much. 
So that's why when people complain about being isolated during the pandemic, like we get it, we, it is so hard, but we would rather isolate than take that risk of, you know, taking him to the trampoline park or something, which he would have loved. You know, we were very active and very busy before diagnosis. So now we just had to stop all of that, but we know that we just need to keep him safe for now and things will be different one day when he's all done. Let's dive into your mindset a little bit because, you know, when Hudson's diagnosed, you have a 10 week old. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. you haven't even recovered physically from giving birth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are some, those are some rough times. And now this, do you remember, can you think back to where your headspace was at that time? And let's add, I was exclusively breastfeeding because why would my child take a bottle? Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, of course. <laughs> So she had to stay with us in the hospital. Her bedroom um, became the bathroom and she'd sleep in a little rocker. So I just remember thinking like, how am I going to breastfeed this child, talk to these doctors, you know, comprehend all of this, make sure my husband is comprehending all of this because he doesn't work in healthcare at all while keeping husband entertained while they are starting an IV and doing blood transfusions. So your mind is just as a mom, you're like multitasking everything and planning. And I'm when I, as soon as I got off the phone with our nurse practitioner, I start packing these bags. And of course, you know, I pack enough for Hudson to stay in a hospital for a month. Violet, same thing. Me, I'm packed. I packed my husband. I think all I packed him was like a pair of socks. Like <laughs> he's on his own. At that point. Yeah. I get but it. <laughs> as a mom, you're like, I just have to prepare for these children. They had all the toys and bath towels and everything they would need. So you just immediately think, what did they need? And then we kind of come second at that time. But I just remember breastfeeding so much in the hospital. You know, of course, my child is not sleeping through the night at that point. You're nursing them back to bed and like hoping that they don't wake Hudson up, who, you know, finally just fell asleep. And the nurses are coming in, you know, every so often. So I don't even know that any of us really slept for a good portion of that frontline therapy. My husband took probably my favorite picture. I was, we were at the university of Iowa and I'm breastfeeding Violet and Hudson is standing behind me leaned over and he is bald at the time and he has his NG tube in and that could not be more of an example of how our frontline therapy went between just like nursing her and making sure he was comfortable. And there were times where I would be carrying her at, you know, three months old. And because he lost the ability to walk, I would be carrying him. So you're carrying a toddler and a baby at that point around because, you know, you can't leave one behind. There's so much mom guilt that goes into this. It's he couldn't sit up on his own. So you are now not only hundred percent mother, you are also hundred percent caregiver. So for a toddler who is now, you know, completely weak. He's in so much pain. He's miserable doesn't understand what's going on, can no longer talk. So that part was very hard. Kind of the first six weeks of treatment, you were just so exhausted. I remember my husband and I both falling asleep, like leaning over the crib at the hospital. And then Violet woke, I had to nurse her back down and then go back over and lean over the crib to fall asleep. Just, but you know, as a mom, just when you feel like you have nothing else to give, you do like you find a way and your body just keeps going. Somehow there's this strength that comes out of you that you just never knew you had. 
You just do whatever you have to do for your child in that moment. And then you look back on it and go, how the heck did I do that? Yes. Yes. Like I think to myself, there's no way I could do that again, but you would, if you had to, right. You would, your body and your mind would do it. You would set aside your needs in that time and take care of your child. And, you know, Violet still continued to thrive. She had most of her first milestones in the hospital and you almost overcompensate at that point to make sure she's getting everything she needs. And lucky for us, we had a friend that would come to the hospital often to help care for her. And the nurses become your family. I mean, there were times where they were bouncing Violet and we were trying to, you know, take care of Hudson. It's total survival in those times. But I mean, if we had to do it again, we would. Right. Yeah. You just do so many things that you don't think you're capable of. That picture that you talked about, that's your favorite picture. That's got to be around somewhere and you probably periodically Yes. think when you see yourself in that picture. I think that I look incredibly strong, like go me, pat myself on the back. It's a very inspirational photo. You know, it reminds me of the strength that I had in those very, very trying times. And I am so proud of the picture. And I'm so happy my husband took that photo because in that moment, I was probably hating everything. But looking back, I just give myself so many kudos for doing what I was doing. And I think a lot of times moms, we just don't give ourselves that credit. We think that we should be able to do everything 100% of the time and not rely on others. You know, as, as moms, we just have these, you know, really high standards for ourselves. And when I look back at that, you know, I looked like a mess, but I am doing such a great job in that photo, feeding my child, caring for my cancer child. And I just wish moms would give themselves more credit because yeah, awesome. Well, I love that you have that attitude and you're not sitting there like having these regrets or I should have done more. I could have done more. You know, it's cool that you give yourself all the credit that you deserve. Yes. And I think that we need to do that. There are times that that is deserved. And that that was one of them. I did everything in my power and I was proud of myself for doing it. And same with my husband. I mean, you just, I mean, cause it's so trying on your marriage and friendships and everything. And we worked wonderful as a team. We still do. And I mean, it's hard, but again, you just do what you have to do for your child. Well, yeah, I'm wondering how, like, how work worked out for the both of you. I mean, like, what was, what was happening? Oh, when um, the day of diagnosis was Kyle's last day at a previous job. So that made things very difficult um, as far as insurance and all kind of the logistics and background of it all. But we just had to stop working. Both of us were off for at least a month at least. And then he would try to go back to his new job and Hudson would spike a fever and he'd have to leave. So there was so many times where we were just not working and it's almost impossible to just when you like try to develop this routine, he would get a fever. Mm -hmm. So there's so many unknowns in the beginning that it's nearly impossible to have any kind of routine or any expectations for work or things like that. And we were fortunate our employers worked with us and we're very understanding and helpful and they, they continue to be. So we're, we've been fortunate to not have to worry about that. Yeah. Yeah. And then meanwhile, you've got friends that are helping and, and stepping up. 
Yes. You, you really realize who your true friends are, the friends who are there through his most difficult times where, you know, we worry if he's going to live and the times where we're celebrating. I had one moment when he was sick last year and in the hospital, I text my friend who lives in Des Moines. And I said, I need you to leave work right now and come to the hospital in Iowa city. And I mean, she left work within 10 minutes and was on the way to come watch Violet because we thought we were going to have to make some very difficult decisions. So, you know, you realize who these true friends are or these people who will be there regardless, you know, in your best and worst of times. We also really realized how wonderful the community is. We were very quiet about this almost for the first year. A lot of people didn't know about Hudson's diagnosis, only some close friends, some close family and some neighbors because we just weren't ready to answer questions and we just wanted to focus on him. But once we started sharing his story, the outpouring of love and support from complete strangers in the community was amazing. Um, There's so many that still reach out to us. I, I don't even know who they are, but they send him gifts or they'll send us gift cards or well wishes. And just the Quad Cities and the North Scott community have been amazing. Our hometown of Atomwa has been amazing. He is, I mean, because he's a toddler boy obsessed with police cars and fire trucks and all things that go. And Scott County Sheriff Department is always coming to our house. He gets more parades than any other <laughs> child I know. We had to finally like start warning our neighbors because they thought that something was wrong when all these sheriffs would show up at our house. But that's one of the things that has been really positive coming out of this is you just feel so much support from your community. I can't imagine living somewhere else and going through this. Our neighbors are incredible. They have cared for, you know, our dog and our our lawn and they take so many stresses away from you that would just be another burden through all of this. Yeah, why did you decide to keep it private for a little while? Number one, you probably didn't have time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, were there any other hesitations? You feel so bad for the child because you want him to feel normal. And you realize that it too, he doesn't care what other people think, but you feel so sad for him. And we weren't ready to be bombarded with all the questions. So we kind of stayed in our yard and we still managed to have comments When he started losing his hair, that was mentally, that was probably one of the hardest for me. I knew it wouldn't bother him. He's a toddler boy who could completely care less, doesn't have any concept of that or realize what's going on. But we were out in the yard and a woman walked by us and made a comment about his bald head if he was going to survive. What? So things like that are what kind of blow your mind and make you never want to leave your house again. Another time it happened, we drove through Starbucks because, you know, we can't go in restaurants. We can't go in the grocery store, Thought I'd go through Starbucks. You know, these people probably mean well, but they made a comment if I chose to shave his head that bald. So it's just reasons like that. We just chose to stay private because we couldn't handle those comments. You know, it was a difficult time. You know, it was just hard enough. We didn't need to be reminded. We had enough physical reminders and then that wasn't the only, I mean, we had multiple comments about his hair loss that as a mom, it just crushed your heart even harder. Every time someone said something, him losing his hair is just like this indescribable sadness because we were prepared for it on day one, because I said, is he going to lose his hair? I knew the answer to it. And I think I just thought it was going to be such a terrible visual reminder. And it was, and 
So I remember my husband was like scrambling upstairs by his crib one morning when he went to go pick him up and I came up and he was trying to change Hudson's pillowcase so I wouldn't see it. And it was just covered in hair. So that started his hair loss journey. And then another time I went to kiss him and I pulled my head away and I had his hair all over my lips. And so that was another reminder. So it just kind of fell out in these clumps and I would notice it on his hair and then it didn't completely fall out. But then when he was going through a more intense phase, he started losing it again. So not only did we experience the hair loss one time, we had to lose it again. So again, it didn't bother him at all, but as a mom, you know, you see and you go to rub your child's head to comfort them. And then you just, this hair falls out. So that was one of the most difficult visual reminders, I would say, of the whole thing was you just can't prepare for some things. There are some parts of it you can try to prepare for, but that wasn't one of them. The heartbreak with his hair loss was something we'll never forget, but it didn't faze him at all. My little guy just turned two yesterday and (laughs) he had his first haircut this week and he has just the most wonderful, Mm -hmm. blondest, babiest hair, you know? It's incredible. And yeah, and I'm trying to imagine slowly watching mm-hmm. him lose that. Yes. And then for yeah. someone to notice, it's like you want to be acknowledged for your struggle. You want to be acknowledged that that you're fighting through something difficult. But when yes. you're acknowledged for a superficial reason yes. of that struggle, it's like you're you're missing the point, lady. You yeah. are missing the point. Yes. And I was speechless at that point. I'm sure the woman just, I don't even know what she thought, but my husband had to handle that one because- what would have came out of my mouth would not have been very kind, probably. Yeah, the hair loss was, and I, I actually took a picture of his hair, maybe the third day in treatment, because I thought, I just, I need to remember this. And I took a picture of it, and I kind of checked out mentally from everything else for a little bit. And I just stared and felt his hair, thinking, I'm going to want to remember this. And, you know, you brush it up on your face. It's just that one of those smells and one of those feelings as a mom, you just know it. And... So when his hair started to come back in, it was, it was a good feeling. And when he got to have that first haircut after it came back in, that was a big moment. So you just, oh my gosh, just the feeling of their hair and it's just so soft. And so when he was losing that hair, it was just so tough, that visual reminder and the NG tube that he had in was another visual reminder that people would make comments on. And that was another hard part as a parent we had to replace his NG tube. So this is one of those things you never thought you'd be putting an NG tube in your child down their nose, into their throat, into their belly. And to this day, Hudson is still scarred from that. He knows he won't let us near his nose. He plays doctor and tries to put NG tubes in, which is not normal for a three-year-old. You shouldn't be pretending to do a lumbar puncture or put an NG tube in, but we had to change his NG tube in at home. I know I put it in, I think three times. And it was the most horrendous. I mean, Kyle had to hold him down while I put this in because I knew he had to have it. I knew I was going to cause my child fear and pain, but it's, you don't have a choice. You have to do what your child needs in that moment. And as he's screaming, no mama, please. No, no, no. Let go, dad, let go. I'm shoving this tube and I'm, you know, shoving this tube down him and kids are just so resilient he afterwards he finishes and he looks at me like why would you do this to me 
but then, you know, kids, you give them a prize afterwards and they instantly love you again. And kids are just, they are so strong and resilient and they're so forgiving. Adults could learn so much from them, but I've had to do that three times to him. So the scarring that parents have to deal with through all of this is awful, but we do it because we know our child needs to survive. And you go through these terrible experiences and you know that you're forever going to be scarred from them, but it doesn't matter because your child needs it. Is it a relief in some ways that you have that medical background? I mean, I'm trying to imagine somebody with no medical background learning to do this stuff. I was relieved because that meant I didn't have to take him into the ER for someone else to replace it. We didn't have to make another middle of the night Iowa City trip and get Viola out of her crib. But then there's times it's like, you know, I know the language. I know what they're saying. When I when he had the 107 degree fevers, they're talking in terms that I can hear that are terrifying. And I'm thinking to myself, thank God Kyle doesn't know what they're saying right now because I do. And it's terrifying. So there are good and bad to having all this medical knowledge. But in those moments, I was grateful that I, I knew what I was doing and I could, I could do that. How often are you getting to be just mom? You know what I mean? Are you ever yeah. able to turn off nurse brain? <laughs> Our oncologist really encourages me to do that more. <laughs> so does my husband, but it's so hard. It is so hard because, you know, you try to be mom, but at the same time, you're also part of being a mom is, okay, is his speech therapy for today done? And are his medications done? That's just, that comes along with being mom, making sure that all of his physical needs are also being met. But it's rare. It's a rare occurrence that my mind isn't in provider mode, which I'm starting to learn is nearly impossible to shut off because you're just constantly thinking even so we were di diagnosed in March of 19. And I mean, even now this far into treatment, childhood cancer consumes my mind. I mean, a huge chunk of the day, whether it be reading research articles or, you know, reading about his medications or worrying about if he had a runny nose today. And if we're going to be in the hospital for a week, just the worrying never ends. Do you imagine that there's a day that you won't feel that way? I hope so. But even after treatment, they're not considered cured for five years and he will always be at risk of relapse forever. So he'll have to go annually. Eventually he'll be going yearly for appointments to make sure, but there's always a risk. So I think that fear will lessen over time or not be as often, but as a mom, I think one of our number one jobs is to worry. And so I don't think it'll ever fully go away. I mean, seeing what he's gone through and having that fear, we now know the true meaning of fear. We have seen our child fight death more than once. So we now know that true feeling. We thought we knew fear before, but we didn't. It's terrifying when a child is sick, regardless, you know, whether they have, you know, strep or pneumonia, anything it's terrifying. There are children, but we had never experienced anything like this. You also realize that there's something so much grander than fear. And that's just the love for your child. Yeah. I don't think that that feeling of fear will ever go away because it was so, it was such a shock and it was so terrifying that there's so much trauma that comes along with it through the whole process. Can you tell me about one of those times? Oh, uh, one of the times would be when you first got diagnosed you know, knowing how critical his labs were and 
repeating over and over, he can't die, he can't die. When I called my husband and all I said to him on the phone was, Hudson's going to die and we need to go to the hospital right now. He has cancer. So knowing his labs were that low and then seeing all those blood transfusions, those were one of those moments that I thought there is a chance he won't survive this. Another one would be about a week after he got done with that first phase, I started noticing he just seemed completely off. He you know, couldn't sit up. He looked very ill. And we took him in and I started sobbing to our nurse practitioner at Iowa. And I said something, he doesn't seem right. This isn't him. Something else is going on. And she stopped me and she said, he's just not your boy. And she couldn't have been more accurate. And she said, don't worry, he'll come back. We will bring him back. And, you know, again, we trusted them and they did, but he looked so ill in that moment. And I could see all the effects of chemotherapy finally hitting him. I thought, how does a child survive this? And so that was a very memorable moment. And then when he um, had the 107 degree fevers and he went into cytokine storm and he's in respiratory distress and he's having to make the decision, does he breathe or does he take a bite of food? That was another one of those traumatizing moments that you would never want a parent to see. And, you know, they're so hot with this fever that he is so lethargic and just can't even move. But then you see a medication given and four hours later, he is upright and eating a hot dog. I've never been more thankful for modern medicine and for these doctors and nurses because they are angels. We were told um, about a book not too long ago um, written by a former cancer patient and it's called Better Angels written by Sadie Keller. And she talks about these angels that are kind of placed throughout your life. You might not know it at the time, but you'll realize their significance. And we have realized that our oncologist, Dr. Dickens, and the nurses up on the 11th floor at Iowa are truly angels that have saved our child's life more than once. I mean, they have comforted us. They have, you know, cared for Violet when we needed it. They're just these incredible people that we're so thankful that they were placed in our life. The 11th floor has gotten a lot of national attention, especially in the last couple of years because of yeah. the Iowa wave. I yeah. assume you guys have gotten to experience that. So we were inpatient the day before a wave and we actually got to go home, which we were okay with. We said we would watch the wave from our couch and be perfectly fine with that. Um, so the wave has a whole new meaning to our family, as you can imagine. Um, it is a very strange feeling that when you're watching the Hawkeyes play and you look during the wave and you like see one of your little cancer friends, you know, waving through the window and just everything through the hospital and dance marathon and everything they do for those families. It is amazing. And the wave is such a huge part to the families there. And there's not a lot of excitement that happens up there as you can imagine, but that is one of those exciting moments you see families you know, getting excited for. So I'm hearing that there's a lot of families that you've gotten to know mm-hmm. over the past two years because yeah. you spent a lot of time going through yeah. very similar things. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about that. One of our goals is to almost be a resource for these parents um, when they get diagnosed because you're hit with this diagnosis and you just almost don't even know to, where to go from there. Mm-hmm. And so we wish we would have had someone almost guiding us that had been through it. So we hope one day to be that person for other families. And that's what we're kind of trying to do right now, but you meet these moms and it's just so nice that they know the lingo that you're talking about and you're asking them what their child's blood counts are. And 
cancer moms are just, they're just incredible. And I love making these friends with them and seeing how strong they are and how amazing their children are. And a lot of them we've only met, you know, via Facebook or over social media. And I just like, can't wait till the pandemic is over to actually like be able to talk to them. You know, we've met some, some amazing families up there. And unfortunately we've been there for other times when, you know, we see these families come in with their children and then we see them leave without their child. So we've been there on the floor admitted for, you know, a few losses now. And so it completely changes your perspective. You just always have to find a reason to be thankful. We're in a terrible situation, but we realize our situation could be so much worse because we've seen it. We've seen kids go through much more difficult treatment than Hudson. We've seen families experience loss and just more difficult hardships than we have. So I try and remind, you know, just friends and family that it could be so much worse. You know, Such we, a mom thing to say. It really is. But it's so true because, yeah. and people say that to me and they're like, oh, I shouldn't complain to you. I'm like, no, it's fine to complain to me. Just know that it could be worse. It's okay to have those struggles and to deal with it in that moment, but just know that it could be so much more difficult than what they're going through now. Right. And just try to find the good in things. And I know parents get so frustrated with their children at times and which is fine. Children are very difficult, but I tried to tell friends, you know, just pause for a moment in those really difficult times. I know families that would kill to have that back. They would kill to have that toddler who's not sleeping through the night anymore or that kid that's throwing tantrums all day long. So it's hard. I know I've had two under two, but there are parents who would do anything in their power to have their children back and to have tantrums all day long and to have those difficult days. So I try and remind myself of that when I'm having a a, a difficult mom day and it's like, okay, just pause. Like, I'm just going to hug you for a moment, buddy, because these are hard days, but it could be harder. Perspective. Yes. It is all about perspective and ours has completely changed. I mean, we're forever changed. We'll never be the same. Yeah. Talk to me about marriage in the face of childhood cancer. Our oncologist told us day one, it wasn't his opening line, but it was pretty close that like 50% of parents like get divorced through this which I understand why you're sleep deprived. You know, your income significantly changes. Um, The demands that your children need significantly increase. Um, You're being thrown with all these decisions that you have to make. We worked really well together and our oncologist even pointed that out. I would kind of absorb all this medical information from him while Kyle was occupying um, Hudson and Violet and then afterwards we would kind of decompress and I would try to explain a lot of that to Kyle, my husband. So we just kind of had this balance, which worked really well for us. And it might not for other, other families, but there are some really hard points when you're both just so exhausted and you have a newborn essentially. Um, And you're, so you still have the middle of the night feeds and all of that in the middle of the night wakes. But I think, you realize like how strong your partner truly is also that alone is you're just so thankful for that. I was so thankful for him through the whole process and frontline treatment because there was so much of that focus I had to put on Violet as I'm nursing her and trying to get her back down because of course she only wants mom in the middle of the night. She doesn't want dad. And so um, I was so thankful that he got up with me every single time 
to make sure, you know, that I didn't need anything and that um, Hudson was doing okay. It is hard. There's no doubt about that, but we have found a balance and I just am grateful for that because having a sick child is difficult enough, you know, throwing like marital problems on top of it would just be even more difficult. And we hear that, you know, parents getting divorced through treatment. And I just can't even imagine adding that on top of everything. But when you take those vows, when you talk about for better or for worse, you never consider what the worse actually is. Cause I think you're just young and naive and you go like, what could be that bad? Like this person's awesome. You know yes. what I mean? Yes. And, and I'm sure this is one of the worses that you never, never, never put on the list of maybes. Never in a million years did we think this would be our life, but you know, we're getting through it and we just are learning along the way and figuring things out because, you know, you can't quite develop, like I was saying, you don't develop this routine because everything changes so quickly, but you find out what each other's strengths and weaknesses are and you just try and balance and communication because without that, it just wouldn't work. If you don't mind, I'm going to read a really poignant post that you posted recently about Violet and her whole role in this thing. Yes. Because it's an important point too. And it's something that's clearly going to shape the rest of her life. So you wrote cancer siblings are so often overlooked. They watch as their sibling gets tortured, flooded with attention and gifts, get hauled around from appointment to appointment are isolated because their siblings high risk miss out on opportunities and play dates. They're raised in the hospital and are more, more comfortable on the oncology floor than in public. Violet has been Hudson's biggest supporter and best friend through it all. She continues to thrive through it all and go with whatever is thrown at us. During steroid weeks, Hudson develops a fear of the bath and makes it very difficult to bathe him. Today, Violet knew he was scared and washed his hair and back and was able to make him comfortable and happy. She's a sweet soul and the MVP. I looked at that picture for a long time when you posted that because here is a little girl, a little girl who's facing something she never should have to, you know, you shouldn't watch your, your best buddy be sick Mm -hmm. like that. Talk to me about Violet through all of this. She is, she is, she is just such a sweet soul through being raised in the hospital was the happiest little baby. I mean, she brought so many smiles to his face when none of us could because he was terrified of us. And she was just the light through all of this darkness. When it first happened, when we first got diagnosed, I thought, how am I going to raise a newborn? And then, you know, now looking back, it's like, we're so thankful we had her in that moment because we can't imagine going through this without her little light shining. She was just so happy. And it was a nice reminder throughout the hospital stays and when we were at home and there would be so many times when he couldn't get up that she would just lay beside him. And the only thing he would want to do was like try and hold her hand. And you just see this sweet bond between them that we never thought that they would have. But now we have this two-year-old that is trying to comfort her three-year-old brother because he is going through harsh chemotherapy and doesn't want to take a bath. It wasn't prompted. I just see her pick up a wash rag and just start washing his hair and then start washing his back. And I'll hear her say, no hurt, no hurt. And she's two. I I was just so proud in that moment that I'm raising such a kind little human and that she has seen us comfort him. And now she's picking up on these little empathetic cues and 
she's just so wise beyond her age. And the things that I see her do when Hudson has to have a sticker put on his chest before we go to Iowa City with some Emla cream over his port, she now says, I'll get my sticker on. And she'll try to put his on. And she always says, no hurt, no hurt, no owie, just a sticker. Just watching her be this brave little toddler for him and go through it with him. So he's not alone. So he's not the only one with a sticker. It's just incredible. Those photos that I shared, I was so happy that I heard, I had my phone and I hurried up and took those. And then by the end of the bath time, I mean, he's smiling and he stayed in the bathtub for an hour, which is unheard of during stairway time because it's such a difficult time. And at the same time, I'm sure it's, I'm sure you feel sad sometimes that this has to be her life, you know? Oh yeah. You know, she didn't get a first or second birthday party, which they don't remember those. I mean, but it's one of those things that she missed out on. We did something fun for her at home, which she loved. And I'm grateful that she's so easily entertained and is so happy, but she hasn't gotten to go experience um, the children's museum or trampoline parks or play dates or anything like that because we can't risk her getting something bringing it home to Hudson so right now she's doesn't realize what she's she's missed out on but you still feel feel sadness for her knowing what she is missing out on and she's more comfortable at the hospital than she is you know if I were to take her for a play date probably so that's kind of a bizarre concept but she knows that is a normal life. But right now, if she's happy, then I'm happy. So how has the pandemic changed things for you guys? Or have you been living the life the whole time and it's just normal? I get asked this a lot. And for us, it's it's really not much of a difference other than we struggled for a long time getting some of the supplies that we would normally need. Fortunately, we had friends and family that would buy extra um, like Clorox wipes for us, things like that, that we use every day, all day. But there were some moments of panic when we didn't have hand sanitizer on the shelves and Clorox wipes. That for us changed when all of a sudden our normal daily needs were being bought off the shelves, as well as we had been using like car side pickup religiously for a year. And then everyone else decided to start doing it. So our time slots are a little different now, um, but this was has just been our life and we had been masking and everything. So now, you know, you hear about people complaining that they have to wear a mask. And I made a Facebook post about it. Actually, we were taking Hudson into the hospital to have labs drawn because um, we thought his hemoglobin and his numbers were low. And a gentleman in front of us didn't want to wear a mask and had some choice words to say about it. And I just wanted to stop him and say, you know, I understand that you don't want to do this for you, but you should want to do it for other people like our child who is three years old battling cancer. So while you don't want to, you just have to think for others. So seeing people fight so hard about the masking is very bothersome to us because I'm not masking necessarily for myself. I'm masking for my child who's trying to survive. Um, So that part has been very frustrating about the pandemic, as you can imagine, the anti-mask situation. Yeah, I understand that. And I'll be honest, I've been the anti-mask person before. And in some ways, I still kind of am. You know what I mean? Where you just get in your own selfish headspace and Mm -hmm. you're like, ugh, you know? No, I don't want to wear masks. I don't like wearing masks, especially work. I don't like wearing N95s. They're terrible. 
Um, they're uncomfortable and annoying. And I would love to go into a grocery store. I just have to think about Hudson and other kids like him. I just remind myself I'm not necessarily doing it for myself. I just am doing it to keep other at-risk people safe because look what a simple virus did for us. You know, it almost killed our child. So I, I mean, the anti-maskers, I know it, it sucks completely to wear these masks. We've been doing it for almost two years, but there is a reason behind it, I promise. And we appreciate everyone who does mask and take the precautions. And we want the pandemic on just as much as everyone else does. So right now Hudson's on this maintenance program and that's scheduled through May of 2022, you said? So he takes chemo every day at home. Okay. And then once a week, he takes another chemo. And then once a month, we go to Iowa City and he has his port accessed. So he has a little device in his chest where they stick a large needle in to draw blood and give him other medications. And then every three months, he does the steroids, which is horrendous. And he gets chemotherapy into his spine and into his port. So and he'll do that until May of 2022. And at this point, how does his body handle it? Does he still very, very sick days immediately after some of these treatments? It's incredible. He had a lumbar puncture um, about a week ago and he came home and was like bouncing off our couches. And like, Hudson, you, buddy, you got to like, just sit down for a moment. And so we're fortunate that he has tolerated a lot of this in maintenance fairly well. I know other families who their kiddos are so sick during treatment and other than induction, when he couldn't walk, couldn't talk, couldn't eat all of that, that was what affected him physically the worst. Now um, he does have some days you can tell he's run down, but he is just so determined and strong-willed that he is going to run around. So he just keeps going. And I think that's part of why he does so well is he just doesn't stop and he plays and plays and plays, which is a wonderful therapy. Certainly. What do you think is going to get you through this next year and a half? You know what I mean? To think that you still have a long, long way to go yet. It feels like forever. Actually, some kids now, some protocols have changed and they are dropping treatment by a year. We will not be um, because he had it in his spine, which puts him at higher risk. So if that was the case, we would have been done this May. Um, But to survive another 16 months, we just take it day by day. Even saying 16 months feels like forever, but I think just going day by day and trying to survive. And once we get to that point, it'll be a whole new life trying to adjust to off treatment and worrying about, you know, are there going to be any long-term side effects? Because over 95% of kids who go through this childhood cancer treatment have issues in their life later on, some kind of medical um, problem. So then it'll kind of switch to what are the long, long-term treatment or side effects going to be from it. Is he going to be able to attend some kind of a preschool or how did these early learning days go for a childhood cancer patient? We worked with the AEA and we still do for speech therapy um, early on, which was great. They came to the house. We didn't have to go anywhere. And then we did start him in a small private preschool two mornings a week. He's missed quite a few days for fevers. And if there's someone there sick, things like that. But where we take him, they're so wonderful. And they know Hudson's whole story and they're 
just really great about sanitizing and keeping everything clean. And so he's just kind of gotten into this routine of going, but they work with us really well. And if we, if he can't go, if he's not feeling well after like a lumbar puncture or something like that, he doesn't go. If he is on steroid week, something like that, he doesn't go, but he will finish the spring or May of 2022 and then should start kindergarten in the fall. So that would be our goal is to have them completely done and everything before kindergarten would start. And everybody gets emotional about sending their kids to kindergarten. But for you, I mean, that would be the happiest and saddest day ever. Yes, 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 for sure. There will be a lot of emotions that day, I'm sure. But we'll just be so happy that we made it to that point that he survived. And that is going to be a huge accomplishment. We find a lot of excitement and just silly, small, everyday things that maybe other people take for granted. Things that we're noticing that he does that we're so proud that he learned how to do something or that physically he was able to do something. Um, So even the small things we get so excited over, like when he started to let us use a spoon near his mouth again, that was a huge day because he was so terrified of us coming near him with a syringe. Sure. All this all these different fears. So little things like that, we just get so excited for. What can people do to support a family going through what you guys are going through? Bring coffee. We have had a lot of coffee drop-offs that really turn our day around. Meals that are dropped off because throughout the day, or if we're having issues giving him his medications, the last thing we want to do is cook. So meal drop-offs have been a huge help as well as people send prizes and things like that to our house that we will bribe him to take medications with prizes because I mean, why not spoil him during this? We were told that we shouldn't spoil him at one point by someone, but we a hundred percent support spoiling him. And um, you don't so, talk to that person anymore. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Little prizes that we can give him um, to help with medications and stuff like that is helpful. We have had our neighbors, like I said, help with things around the house or lawn care because you just run out of time during the day. Even without a child who is sick, it's hard to keep up with all of this. So add that on top of it. And those things are so incredibly helpful Um, as well as donating blood. We get so excited every time we see someone donate blood because we know that's three more lives saved. We also are so happy when people actually talk about childhood cancer because it's so underfunded and there's not enough awareness. Only 4% of uh, funding goes toward childhood cancer and 96% goes to adult cancers. So there's no research for kids, hardly any. So just by talking about childhood cancer and spreading awareness, it, it helps. And just not forgetting about us. A lot of people have kind of, you know, their life continues and ours stops. So it's odd seeing everyone else's lives just keep going and continuing and we're stuck. It's always nice when we're remembered and people haven't forgot about us and check in on us because we just can't really continue with our lives much right now, which is okay. I mean, people should continue with their lives and move on and do all of these fun things, but it's just not in our cards right now. And those reminders that people haven't forgotten about us are always really nice and make our day. So that would be some more advice. And dropping off Clorox wipes to friends. (laughs) If you have extra Clorox wipes, we're stocked up right now, unfortunately, because we have, you know, friends and family who have given those to us, but that's been incredibly helpful as well. It's probably hard not to play the comparison game though. 
to go, wow, I wish I was with my husband and we're going to Mexico this weekend. Yes. Yes. We see these things and you try not to be bitter, but we're human and we'll be the first ones to admit. It's like, we wish this wasn't our life. And we wish that we were the ones vacationing right now and enjoying all this, you know, these wonderful experiences, but we can't, we are really working on not being bitter about those things and remembering that our life will always not, it won't always be this hard and something good has to come from Hudson having cancer. We are determined to spread awareness and advocate for these children and be their voices and make something positive come from this because, you know, he's not going through this torture for nothing. It'll be good for us one day. We just have to be patient for that. And everyone deserves to continue with their lives and be happy and have those own experiences with their family. But yeah, we do, we do get sad when we see everyone else kind of enjoying their families and vacationing and being able to go to a grocery store and stuff. So one of the ways that you're advocating for children right now is through advocating for blood donation. And so that's how we got connected. Yes. Because I think that's such a cool program to, it's like, how much stuff do you blab about on social media? It's time to blab about something good, which is blood donation. And because because you reached out, I donated blood. So it was back at the end of October. I finally got the text message that I'm eligible for, you know, to come back (laughs) again, but I hadn't donated blood in a super long time. And this is a lame-o excuse, but it's my truth. Um, (laughs) For some reason, it takes me a really long time to spurt out enough blood. And I remember the last time I donated was probably back in college. Again, terrible excuse, but they were like, this is really taking you a long time. Like, do you have like (laughs) low blood pressure issues or something? And it just took a really long time. So it was like, ugh, if this takes (laughs) long, you know what I mean? Yeah, it took a while. I don't know what, what my deal is, but... No, I get it. I had never donated before. And I'm embarrassed to even say that, but I was like, I am too afraid of needles. I don't want stuck in the arm with a needle, which is so terrible. I watched my son get one put into his chest and here I am like whining about a needle, you know, in my arm, but I tried three times before I was able to donate because it wasn't coming out fast enough. And then it clotted off. But you know, and people get so upset when they tell me they tried to donate and they couldn't, but it's like, at least you tried, you know, keep trying tell other people about it, encourage others, you know, go on a date and donate blood. And even in the pandemic now, it's, it's still perfectly safe to go donate blood. All of the precautions are taken. They do a wonderful job. Everything is very sanitary. And it, most people, you know, you're in and out of there super quick. And in that short, you know, 30 minutes, you've saved three lives which could be Hudson's life. So I just love being such an advocate for blood donation now because I didn't realize the impact until I've watched it save my child more than once. It's just amazing to know that these blood donors are saving kids like Hudson. But I think we all, it's like, we all want to do something. I think we all want to make a difference in some way, but it always feels like, well, I don't have five hours to go volunteer at the soup kitchen or whatever. And it's like, you create this lofty moment that like, I'm not making a difference unless I spend a week in Haiti cleaning up after an earthquake. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so after I donated blood, I told, I said that exactly to my husband. I'm like, I, I always feel like it has to be this big moment And actually it was 40 minutes at the blood center, which is down the street from the house. Not a big moment to you, but on the receiving end, 
I read this quote and it, I'll forever remember it. And it said, tears of a mother cannot save her child, but your blood can. And it's so real. The people who donate, it's like, mm, you know, okay. I like, got out of class for a half hour, got to go donate some blood. But on the other end of it, it's like, oh my gosh, thank God that these donors took this half hour to donate because now my blood or my son's blood type is on the shelf. There could be a time when there isn't blood on the shelves. And in that moment, those doctors, they don't have a choice. Or if the count, the shelves don't have enough, they have to choose, well, who gets the blood? What child would get the blood? It's because of blood donors that so many of these kids have survived. So to donors, it's like, you know, didn't really do that much, but really it's like, no, you, you truly saved lives. You did something huge. You saved three lives. Do you have any idea? Like if, so if I donate on a Thursday, let's say mm-hmm. based on your experience, like when is that blood being used? Like, it, is it going out as quickly as it's coming in? Yeah, there is like a processing time, but within yeah. the next couple of weeks, it's starting to be processed and then be sent to, you know, either University of Iowa or locally. So our blood is used locally. And now there's a donor program where people are able to thank the donor. So if like your email is registered with the blood center, it's amazing. So now you can donate every eight weeks. And so that's our goal, you know, to donate every eight weeks now. And we hosted a blood drive, our first blood drive, which we hope to do annually, Hudson's Heroes. We did it in September for Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. And we had around 50 donors. So that's, you know, three lives per donor. What else do you want to talk about today, Jessica, that I'm not asking? Trusting your motherly intuition. Because so many times we talk about, I just, I felt it in my gut. I had this gut feeling. And that is what I had when I saw those petechiae. I looked down and I said, Hudson has leukemia. And I just had that pain in my stomach. I knew it deep down in my bones. I knew he had leukemia and everyone denied or, you know, didn't validate my feelings. I had maybe two friends who actually listened to my feelings and really validated me and listened to me. And even if they didn't believe me, they acted like they did (laughs) and didn't make me feel crazy to moms. If you have that instinctive feeling where that gut follow it, we as moms have that feeling and most times it is right. So, you know, don't back down, just advocate for your child, do what you have to do. It doesn't matter if you make someone mad or upset along the way, you just have to do what your child needs. And so just follow your gut feeling because by me following mine, you know, it potentially saved Hudson's life. So don't doubt mothers when they tell you they have a feeling. You're probably very thankful for that gut. Yes. (laughs) You know, I guess the only other thing that I want to say is, you know, I appreciate how candid you were during this conversation and how honest you were. And I didn't think of it until you said it. It was like, can we talk real about this or do we have to talk about it in a smiling make-a-wish sort of a way? Mm -hmm. You know, that is unfortunately a lot of what is, you know, advertised are these like smiling, happy children at St. Jude's, which don't get me wrong. We have a lot of fun with the nurses and the doctors when we're inpatient, they do whatever they have to do to make these kids smile. But there's so much that happens behind closed doors that people don't want to hear because it's horrific and it's disgusting and it's so sad and terrible to hear. They don't want to hear it, but that's real. That is our reality, unfortunately. And those stories are what's going to spread awareness and shine more light on childhood cancer and hopefully have a cure and develop more medications for these kids. These kids are receiving medications that have been around since the fifties and there's just 
no money. There's no funding to find new medications for them. So they have all these terrible side effects, which our kids deserve so much more than 4% of funding. So that is just, that is real. Is money going to the wrong places? I mean, I feel like there are nothing but children's cancer charities. Is this money being misused? Uh, Is there a safe, good place to donate where your money's being put to the right use? So the National Cancer Institute, that is where the funding is being divided into 4% and 96%. Yeah. Um, when we have donated, we donate to places like you know, University of Iowa or Alex's Lemonade Stand. There's, there are some yeah. different childhood organizations that are wonderful, childhood or uh, children's oncology group. So you just have to make sure it's geared toward childhood cancer. Even just donations through Dance Marathon at the University of Iowa is amazing. They have helped us in many ways, even they help cover medication costs, just other bills like that, that you don't realize how much all of this treatment is. And then we had one medication that was going to be $300 a week after insurance and dance marathon helped cover those extra costs. Wow. So yes, we're very fortunate for groups like that. Wow. Yeah. That's not small numbers when you talk about every week. Yeah. Um, we're grateful that those other groups do exist. How is Hudson today? Is he happy? Yeah. Yeah. No, today he is happy. I mean, he's currently napping. I mean, should Good be boy. my husband told me he's napping. <laughs> I was just talking to Kyle um, before we did this and it's like, wow, even his speech has come so far and physically he's come so far. He's thriving. He, the kid is like 43 pounds and he's three. He's like 99th percentile height. So he is just thriving right now, even though he's going through this life-threatening treatment. It's like, you just are witnessing the strongest human being. And we're so like honored to be his parents and seeing his strength um, and Violet too. We're just so honored to witness this in our lives. But yeah, today he's happy upstairs. He had speech therapy today. Um, he was jumping off the couch onto the beanbag. I don't know how he hasn't broken a bone, but even when we came home and his platelets were 54, which is very low, the first thing he started doing was jumping off of the arm of the couch. And you're like, Oh no, if you even like hit something, you're going to start bleeding. Like, please stop, just slow down. But you just can't slow these kids down. Our, our fears are a little different than a normal parent. But you still see them just being so much of a kid. No, today is a good day for him. Thank you so much to Jessica. And I have so much admiration for the way that she handles this struggle and the way that she speaks about it with such positivity, honesty, and realness. So Jessica, thank you so much. Again, if you're looking for those pictures that we talked about in this episode, you can find them on my Instagram. It's at on a mother level. Please give that page a follow. It's where we post pictures and things that go along with the episode. So you see the faces of the people we're talking to, and you can get an idea of what is coming up here on on a mother level. And I have so much great stuff coming. You guys, I'm so excited for this month and this year ahead because there's so much great content out there and so many great women to be interviewed. So I can't wait for you to hear all of it. Even next week, you're going to really, really love a little bit lighter next week, but it'll be great anyway. So go to Instagram, follow at on a mother level. Please share this episode with a friend. And because it's Valentine's week, have a heart, give blood 
and help save a life. You'll save three lives with one blood donation, even if it takes you an hour to donate like it does for me sometimes. So if you do donate blood and um, you want to share your story, send me a picture of you donating on Instagram and I'll make sure that Jessica gets it. She loves to post those as well and advocate and um, share Hudson's story in that way. So send me your feedback, send me your photos, send me your stories, send it all. It's all part of this on a mother level community and I'm so grateful that you are a part of it. So thanks for listening to On a Mother Level. When it comes to parenthood, we can relate. You have been listening to the WQAD Podcast Network.